we can have a dark chapter and still be in a good story with a good author. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like we have to choose. Either we pretend things are better than they are uh, so that uh, we kind of become God's defense attorney. Or we take this chapter, and some of those chapters are long, uh, and we treat it as if it is the totality of everything. You know, as we're drawing out a timeline and we're working with that and trying to process it and name the different experiences that we have. Mm-hmm. And when you go through these things, they're, um, you know, they're much more like the ocean tide than they are running a marathon. Uh, you know, when you run a marathon, you just take each step. And once you take it, you don't have to retake it. The, the ocean tide kind of comes in and out as it's moving a direction. But when you can start to name and go, okay, this this is a dark chapter. I can still trust a good author who's who's writing this story, who cares for me. I do have a God that is looking over me. Thanks for tuning in to the Reframing Ministries podcast, where we provide strength for today and hope for tomorrow for caregivers and their families. We'd love to hear how these episodes have helped you. After rating, would you share your story in the review section of your preferred podcast app? Our team at Reframing Ministries loves to hear stories of hope and healing, and now we've played a small part in them. Now, here's Colleen. Today, we are going to talk about something that is, I think, an ever-present issue in the church and outside of the church, and that's what do we do with our anger? What do we do when things don't go as we planned, as we expected, and even as God could have altered, perhaps? Um, My guest today addresses that in his book called Angry with God slash at God. An Honest Journey Through Suffering and Betrayal. Brad is a pastor of Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and a professor of biblical counseling at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and also Biblical Counseling Coalition. He has been part of the churchcares.com project as well, which cares for those in the abu- in the abused arena and in the church environment. Brad, thank you. Thank you for putting this work together for us. It's so needed today. Oh, well, I appreciate the opportunity to come and get to share with those that uh, trust you and your ministry about some of the things I've been doing lately. Well, suffering and anger is something that's probably one of the most common topics that we cover or that we run into in our lives, in the community that reframing serves. And so this is so vital and so needed. And especially in our in the season of the world right now, there's such unrest and disruptiveness. Um, I wanted to ask you, Brad, when you started the book, something that I thought was very interesting. You said we look at pain often as a riddle, and then you reframe that for us into looking at it or experiencing it as an experience. Mm-hmm. What? Tell me the difference between those two. 
Yeah, well, I think when we're hurting, whatever the tragedy is that has most recently touched our life, uh, the question that we ask more than any other is the simple three-letter question, why? Yeah. Um, and when we frame our question as why, those around us, for better or worse, helpful or unhelpful, often less satisfying than we would like, they try to give us an answer because we gave them a question uh, and they return serve with something that comes across as an explanation. Um, and so we ask why and they guess at possibilities and the more they guess at possibilities, the less satisfying it becomes. Um, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with asking why. Why is the most most logical, natural question to ask? But really, we're on a journey um, that suffering is much more something we traverse than like when you get a riddle. Once you give the answer to the riddle, the riddle loses all of its ability to create angst. Uh, and that's what we want. We want an explanation that just diffuses and uh, it flips the quilt or whatever metaphor we've been given uh, and makes it all make sense. Um, and suffering is much more of a journey. Uh, and so very early, wanting to invite a reader to say, hey, we're, we're not going to try to answer your pain in a way that, uh, that mansplains it away. That is so good because I'm thinking about my husband and I being on a date recently and we pulled up riddles because he's really mm -hmm. good at them and I'm really not good at them. So I'm mm -hmm. like, it's got to be a yes or no. And when I solve something, I'm like, yes, I And it's almost you cross the line and then you move on. Exactly. Pain is not that way at no. all. And yet we want to have an answer for it. And we have biblical um, stories that we see a beginning, middle, and end, that's not the story of our lives. Well, and even in the way you framed that, I think it's so good. When we read our Bible, the vast majority of the Bible is written from an end-of-the-journey perspective. Yes. So you take uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. They were written after Moses had got the people out of Egypt, getting ready to head into the Promised Land. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written after the resurrection. The book of Acts was written after the church was being planted to the ends of the earth. We don't go through our journey with an end of the journey. I'm sorry, we don't go through our suffering with an end of the journey perspective. We go through our suffering much more like the Psalms. The Psalms are some of the most middle-of-the-journey part of the Bible that we get. That's why they're so raw and real. There's lots of exclamation points. There's lots of question marks. They're searching. Many of them are written. They don't end with closure. Um, and we can feel so rushed trying to have an end-of-the-journey perspective when we're still in the middle of our journey. Uh, and so just slowing things down enough to say, hey, what does what does middle of the journey faith and trust look like? Even reframing the question that way is so important. So as you were 
doing this work, I have to assume there were some experiences that you revisited where possibly you had an end of the journey perspective. And God said, hang on, Brad, I'm going to put you back into the middle of the journey. What is something that you really truly wrestled with as you did this work? Kind of what prompted this project for me was in my role where I serve as a pastor of counseling. I, uh, you know, we're a large enough church that the general shepherding care is not as much my role. It's more the acute care. And I get welcomed in on the deep end of the pool of people's lives on a frequent basis. Mm. And between how rushed people felt, not necessarily by something directly, but just as they're trying to take the week in, week out sermon, that that sermon has a beginning, a middle, and end, closure, wrapped up. Uh, I mean, sermons are too much like sitcoms. Uh, like they they come to full resolution in 30 minutes every week. Um, or just, um, you know, so either rushed or they felt bad for feeling bad. Mm-hmm. They didn't know, like, what does a Christian do with unprocessed, unresolved emotion? Mm-hmm. And so it was conversations like that where we were really slowing things down and saying, hey, this this may flash red like anger, but this is, it feels more like grief. What if we looked at this experience and we looked at it through the lens of grief instead of anger? What would that help you do with it? And so just, there were enough of those conversations from a a myriad of places that it it just felt like something was missing in the mm-hmm. Christian literature that was out there. Uh, that again, I don't give people permission, but it it felt like giving permission of, mm-hmm. hey, you can grieve this, and that may be grief that's flashing as like a hot lament kind of anger thing. And so, it was more finding a way to to steward folks' mm-hmm. stories that they. They didn't feel the freedom to do. So that was that was the biggest impetus for this project for me. I know that our pastoral counseling um, director at the church is my husband and I see him on occasion just to do check-ins. And he gives us permission to be in the space that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, we have also, because we're blended as a couple, had to do some timeline work. And you mentioned timeline in the book as being so helpful in the therapeutic process. Mm-hmm. Uh, having done some work with instinctual trauma response, which is aside from the stuff that I do here, but there there is the neurophysiology of a beginning, a middle, and an end. Tell us more about putting a timeline to where we are and those things lamenting that have resurfaced, like you just said, in the process of something, the deeper issues come up. What does that timeline look like? Yeah. So when we go through something that's profoundly difficult, um, it can be a trauma, 
Uh, it can be a diagnosis for ourselves, for a loved one, a betrayal, a church that falls apart because a, a leader didn't have godly character and we lose relationships that were precious to us. It's kind of like you take a plate and you just drop it and it breaks into pieces. You lose a sense of cohesion. It's just chaos for a while. Um, and so when things are just staccato popping into your world and you're trying to respond to the one thing or another that's coming up, uh, again, whether it's doctor's meetings, whether it's attorneys, whether it's the different things that you get into in those situations, it it feels so unruly. And there's a sense in which when I can create a timeline, I can start to put my life in order again. I can't make it neater than it was, but I can begin to understand how I got here. I can begin to think about where I would like to go from here. Uh, there's a sense of order uh, that even if I don't like what's there, I'm empowered to make much better, more intentional choices when that sense of order is restored. Uh, and a timeline is the kind of exercise that can help us do that. Yeah, it is. So much so. Um, and a timeline also, because I know in our community, a lot of dreams have to be released. There's an ongoing lament with grief. I know Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her timeline of the five stages of grief happens to be more associated with the death of someone. So that's a beginning, a middle, and an end. How do you lead someone through? There is no end, but there is hope. I like the metaphor of narrative. Yeah. In terms of like how we make sense of our life. And so um, one way that, that I've worked with people there is to be able to say, hey, we're, we can have a dark chapter. We don't have to deny or diminish anything about this being a dark chapter and still be in a good story with a good author. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like we have to choose. Either we pretend things are better than they are uh, so that uh, we kind of become God's defense attorney. Or we take this chapter, and some of those chapters are long, uh, mm -hmm. and we treat it as if it is the totality of everything. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, as we're drawing out a timeline and we're working with that and trying to process it and name the different experiences that we have. Uh, and when you go through these things, they're, um, you know, they're much more like the ocean tide than they are running a marathon. Uh, you know, when you run a marathon, you just take each step. And once you take it, you don't have to retake it. The, the ocean tide kind of comes in and out as it's moving a direction. But when you can start to name and go, okay, this, this is a dark chapter. Hmm. I can still trust a good author who's, who's writing this story, who cares for me. Um, it allows you to account for the hardness of the situation. Uh, without surrendering the hope that someone really does care and there, um, I do have a God that is looking over me. Yeah, it's interesting. We put God into a category of 
he's either all good or he's all sovereign. And then we assume or define what that looks like. When I saw that you have a previous work on the attributes of God, mm-hmm. once we internalize those truths, there's a stabilizing effect to that ebb and flow that you mentioned with the tide. One of the things I love that you put in the book was critical junctures and six questions to discern what we may have learned from our pain, which is so helpful with the timeline. What things should I have done differently? What things do I wish I would have done? What things I wish I would have seen more clearly? What ways have I sinned? What are ways or times my interests were neglected, key moments that no one could have foreseen or changed? What stands out to you as maybe the most common hiccup or challenge with those questions? Because those are really searching questions. Yeah, I think the biggest hang up with those questions is often we immediately feel guilty when we ask them, or Mm. we immediately feel defensive when we ask them. And so just because we learn something amid a hardship doesn't mean we have to declare that's why God had us go through that. Um, You know, what God promises is to bring good amid what is hard. Uh, That thing that we do that's like, ah, God put me through this so that I would learn this thing. And is this the only way that I could have learned that thing? Um, that's, while an understandable take, it's, it's more than what Scripture says. Uh, it says God will be faithful to help us learn good and important things as we go through hard things. This idea that, again, sometimes because what we have in Bible, in the Bible, is salvation history. So when we look at the life of Joseph, uh, Joseph is one of the characters that exist uh, between Abraham and Jesus, and we're following the line of the Messiah as we're going through. And so, yes, there is that high degree of intentionality uh, that all of the metaphors of like Passover and that kind of thing, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen there. Um, and when God is doing something of that nature, he tends to make it abundantly clear. Like God isn't a God who plays hard to get. Um, he's not passive aggressive going, well, I just thought you would know. Uh, but that's that's not so his true, disposition. Yes. And so if it's something where like, ah, we needed to learn this, he will make that clear. If it's something that we just look back and go, I learned something along the way. He was faithful. The kinds of things that that were harvested in the midst of this that he said he would bring about, he did do those things. Uh, like I think when when we separate those two things, it allows us to engage with the kinds of questions that you just listed there with a lot more emotional freedom. Yeah. Yeah, because when I read them, I'm like, okay, this is a should question, which the shoulda, woulda, couldas immediately have a guilt or some kind of fault leaning. And truly someone, for example, another scriptural go-to is Job. There was nothing that he did behaviorally, spiritually, Mm -hmm. 
God even suggested, have you considered my servant, Job? I'm like, Jesus, that was not a nice thing to do to Job. (laughs) (laughs) But you did, and I love that. And so we know that God, through time, is testing our character. How do you help us move from that guilt place to the learning place. I want to learn from you, Jesus. I want to learn from you in the midst of this. And I think that's where the category of grief helps us. Mm. That if we think of, if anger's our forefront category, then like we're either right or we're wrong. Yeah. Um, When grief comes to the forefront of yeah, I've got grief and anger is one of the things that's in that constellation of grieving. Well, when you first lose a loved one, uh, one of the things that we do is we often saint them. Like they immediately, like during that immediate aftermath, they were perfect. Of course, yeah. And then in time, uh, as we grieve more and process their loss, we can take life lessons from our interaction with them, both good and bad. Mm. Um, that there's things that they did with excellence that that we would want to take on those qualities. There was weaknesses that they had that um, we we want to avoid those. And mm. um, grief allows for more learning because it's more multidimensional than anger, which tends to either be right or wrong. Uh, and so as we see that, again, the the niche I was speaking to is that anger that is an expression of grief, sure. that what prompts it is hardship and tragedy, um, that good things are getting wrecked in our life and the turmoil that we feel in response to that. Grief just gives us a lot more learning options. Uh, And it also gives us that patience, which is a word I keep coming back to of, Mm. hey, just because this is something that I may learn, it may not be next for me on this journey. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis's classic book, uh, Mere Christianity, the fact that he said, if you're going through something hard and it's just not clear what to do with it, I don't think this was his word because football wasn't a thing back then. He's like, just punt that. Wait. Yeah. Um, Like God is patient enough that that question can hold off while you are faithful where you are. Uh, Give it time. There is so much gravity to what you just said. Give it time because we want that riddle answer rather than that experience process and life on this side of heaven is such a process isn't it mm-hmm. um i know from my own experiences and from those that well just from pain in general um it is so disruptive to our lives it's disruptive emotionally, physically it's disruptive, it's mentally disruptive, socially disruptive, vocationally, volitionally, spiritually. I mean, it is so disruptive across the board. There's a desire, especially in the Western culture, I think, 
to alleviate pain rather than to know how to live with it well. In those areas, where do you find the biggest struggle and how can you lead us through those areas so we can live well or live better than we thought we could in the midst of pain? Yeah. And the last thing I want to do is glorify suffering and make suffering the purple heart of the Christian life that uh, like that whole motif. I'm not a fan of that. Right. Um, At the same time, I think culturally we haven't exercised our muscles of suffering well. Mm -hmm. I mean, we live in a day of air conditioning, shocks on our car, immediate internet, like the, if something is off, we feel like it should be able to be fixed fast. Mm -hmm. And so endurance, perseverance, uh, finding meaning amid hardship, uh, those are things that we're just culturally not that good at. Um, And uh, so you cited off uh, several areas there, emotionally, volitionally, relationally, spiritually, kind of delve in the book. I delve into each one of those and just ask, how can we learn? How can we grow? Now, that's not the first part. Uh, That's middle to towards the end of the book, because initially we're just looking to orient ourselves to the experience. But when we're at that spot that we say, I think this experience would be wasted if I didn't if I didn't grow because of it. And if I can't put into words what it is that I've gained, well, I I don't get as much from it and I can't share that hope and direction with somebody else. Um, And so it's not an expectation. It's not a rush. But when somebody's at that spot of harvesting, and again, I think the biggest thing that we do that interrupts that is we rush people. Um, That... When that conversation is engaged before that's the question somebody's asking, uh, as if God is most concerned with what you're learning from this. So true. uh, That part, it it makes the good thing that God would do seem offensive. Um, And uh, But when somebody's ready for that, uh, to begin to go, okay, how do I relate to my unpleasant emotions? Like my unpleasant emotions often have something really valuable to say. Unpleasant emotions are not bad emotions in the moral sense of the word bad. Um, They have a valuable contribution to make. They tell us things that are important about life. How do I help my decision making not become reactive? It is so easy after a tragedy just not to want to have to go through that again. How do I trust like that relational sphere that if that thing that took me to this place was something that fits in the sphere of betrayal, I don't want to be naive. I don't want to be isolated. So the the nature of the tragedy kind of determines which of these areas would fit best for a given individual. Um, you know, what I what I hope people would glean is a sense that these are safe and good questions when I'm ready to engage them. Uh, and God's patient with me and until I'm ready for that. 
Visit us at reframingministries.com for all of Colleen's interviews, articles, recommended resources, and more. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and receive our free five-day video devotional series where Colleen provides pointers for navigating daily life and struggles. That is such great wisdom because we are in a hurry in this world and there isn't often a person who will sit with us and say they're not ready for the. I mean, internally have a dialogue. They're just not ready for this yet. I love that you outline the need for a good friend, kind of unload on or to just be present with. What do those qualities look like when someone is in the midst of, I'm not ready for that. Here's where I'm at. It's a mess. Yeah, I think the number one thing that uh, that I'm looking for in a friend is if they don't know what to say, they're willing to ask more questions. Mm-hmm. Like the person who feels uncertainty with declarations is probably not going, they can be a great friend in lots of other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, my primary motif for counseling So we're talking counseling at the friendship level or the formal level. I don't view counseling as primarily being a teacher. You know, so when people are like, what do you say to somebody who struggles with blank? Um, That makes counseling primarily about teaching. Uh, Yeah, go to a class for that. (laughs) There is. And again, I wrote a book. It's got words in it. Like there's nothing wrong with words. Right. Uh, But I view counseling as primarily as being an ambassador. And sometimes an ambassador represents uh, the king's words. Sometimes, uh, if we're talking about being God's ambassadors, we're much more an ambassador of God's ears. Mm-hmm. Like that friend who could go, I am, I am embodying God's patient listening. Or we're an ambassador of God's eyes. Like as you talk about these things and you look up and you just want to know, does this make sense? Am I talking like I've got three heads? Am I are you upset with me? Are you rejecting me? Like, because when we talk about those hard things, we've looked at our shoes for too long. We look up, we catch the other person's eyes, and their eyes tell us a lot. Yeah. And, you know, if you study shame, which Shame is one of those things that in suffering happens a lot. Like you can get into the deep neuropsychology of shame and all of that. And that's wonderful. But there is nothing more powerful to dissolving shame than telling your story and being met with tender eye contact. And so when we share that hardest part of our life, and we've got a friend who will look at us, who makes eye contact, says, thank you. Thank you for trusting me with your story. Thank you for the courage of being that honest and vulnerable. It means a lot that you that you would trust me that way. The person whose instinct is to listen and say thank you and affirm the courage of what's been shared that's the person that you're looking for to come alongside of you. 
I love that you incorporate the senses with the with your eyes. What are they communicating through their eyes? What are they communicating that you can hear? What emotions are below? Because anger, it's an active, mighty emotion. It can get mm-hmm. a lot done. It right. just doesn't resolve or bring rest to or restoration to the rest of the story. There are a lot of people that I connect with who have had things said to them in a hurried manner. You know, when are you going to get over that? I mean, hasn't it been long enough? Are you just trying to get attention or whatever? What are your words of comfort for those who may never get past the loss of a loved one. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about anger and mm-hmm. um, I'll paraphrase a little bit there where you're like, anger is just a safer emotion. Sure. Uh, like if we had to choose uh, between anger and hurt, fear, any other, like anger is a great turtle shell. Mm-hmm. And so for that friend, who when what they get is the heat of our anger, they can see the vulnerability. Yeah, uh, That's often what's described as secondary emotions versus primary emotions. Um, and it's often that defensiveness towards the edge that is there uh, that causes unhelpful friends to say, hey, when are you just going to get over that? Yeah. It's you're upset. That makes me uncomfortable. Yes. I, I, I get the barbs. Uh, I don't like being barbed when I'm trying to be helpful. I need you to move past that because I don't want to hug a porcupine. And of being able to see, hey, you're still hurting. Mm. Um, and big parts of this still feel unresolved. That, again, this is where where somebody is in the timetable, like since the loss and that kind of thing. Um, You know, many of us have have loved ones that they lose someone and parts of the home becomes a shrine. Hmm. Uh, And it it's like a time capsule in 1982 when they lost someone. Nothing in that realm can change. And it's got them locked down. It it's inhibiting uh, their flourishing and continuing to live. Well, at that spot, we we want more for them. I really dislike the phrase, why can't you just move on? Because moving on feels disrespectful. <laughs> but um, hey, what are the obstacles from you? living the life that is still in front of you. Mm-hmm. That, uh, again, if we use that idea of narrative, if we're talking about the death of a loved one or a tragedy, there's like the time period in which that happens. Mm-hmm. And then your story is continuing. In terms of stewarding, enjoying, engaging, the remainder of your story Oftentimes, the insensitive, why can't you move on, is a 
poorly articulated, I want to help you engage the rest of your life. Hmm. Uh, And um, that what we want for someone, not rushing, like, I can't tell you, like, you should do this. Um, But framing it that way, often people will go like, Yes, I do. I I want that. I feel stuck. Okay, well now we're ministering out of what you have articulated out of a sense of being stuck. Um, and um, again, we could go into lots of things of whether it's a loved one and I feel like I have to be their historian and if I don't continue to tell their story, everybody will forget them or a tragedy. I don't want to act like nothing happened. Like, how do you, how do you steward the event that happened uh, becomes a, a much better question than how do you just move on? Yeah. Well, it's that God has entrusted the individual, you, me, whoever is listening or watching with something bigger than they can handle on their own. And that requires a God who's outside of time and space to walk with us through it because he does have the full plan, which he promises is good. He promises to be faithful a lot of times our identity can get stuck in the loss, the diagnosis, the experience of what we're enduring. Is there a way to help, um, not help, um, is there a way to reframe that experience from becoming an identity to this was something that has happened for a greater purpose? Because that's what That's what reframing ministries is all about. Mm -hmm. There's a bigger purpose, but I can't bring someone to that if they're unwilling to get unstuck. But everyone who gets stuck is miserable. Mm -hmm. There's a misery in that. So help us um, walk alongside or maybe step into our stuck places so we can find a, a life that God wants for us to live. So I'll come at it, you said, if we're the helper or if we're the one who's stuck, we'll maybe come at this question from the perspective of a of a helper. Uh, and one thing whenever I'm teaching counseling that I always say is you, you never counsel an experience. So never in my life have I counseled depression. I've never counseled abuse. Uh, I've never counseled trauma. I've counseled people for whom those experiences are part of their story. Yeah. Uh, And uh, again, that's why I don't like the, what do you say to someone who struggles with, because that makes it about the experience more than the person. Um, And so for some- That's really good, Brad. That's really, really good. I want you to say that again. We never counsel an experience. We never counsel a subject. We counsel a person for whom these experiences are are part of their life. And so for that person who feels stuck, I am divorced. I am widowed. I am rejected, abandoned. I am disabled. Um, That's taking part of the experience and making it the totality of who you are. Hmm. We're not discounting that this is part of your story. Mm-hmm. 
but you are larger than that aspect of your experience. When that defines you, it impairs you. Uh, when you say this, okay, I'm a person, this is part of my story. How do I steward the totality of my life and my experiences? Um, it, um, you know, steward doesn't mean immediately start doing stuff. It does mean there is a me that's bigger than this experience. And regaining that sense of orientation uh, is a huge part of not being so overwhelmed by this hardship that I just feel completely incapable. Uh, and again, that we go we started with timeline. When we see that there was a me before this, and there's a me now that's continuing after this, it it helps this not be this spot where I am frozen. Uh, in that experience, it I become more three-dimensional. Which I would say is rather difficult for individuals who haven't developed the me before this experience, mm -hmm. who have a very solid false self, shall we say, or the, mm -hmm. the, the shell of a person. And often it is the experience that, that crumbles that shell and God is saying, but now we're getting to the person I created mm -hmm. to grow up and to know a life like you've never known that. You talk about hoping or trusting in hope again, because that's really what we long for is to have that hope and trust. So what, what do some of those steps look like as someone says, oh, I don't have to be defined by this. I mm -hmm. am a person created in God's image. How do I start stepping forward in trust and hope? Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned for that person who, uh, you know, a lot of our conversation, at least on my end, I think is assumed we've been talking to somebody that the tragedy happened at some point in adulthood. Uh, but that person who never knew anything but a toxic home environment. Sure, absolutely. Uh, that abuse and berating was part of their development in such a way that um, a, a more innocent or true sense of self and who I am that isn't um, that isn't infused with all of that yes. outside garbage. Yes. Um, it. You know, even being able to say, I'm afraid to be curious. Hmm. You know, that's one thing. When life has been hard, one of the things that we often miss that begins to evaporate is curiosity. You start to survive instead of pursue and dream. Yeah. And one, just to, to validate that that, that fear of dreaming, that mm. fear of hope, it's understandable. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, we don't want to stay there because that's, that gives your suffering the final word on your life. We don't want suffering to have the final word on our life. By the grace of God, suffering nor sin has to have the final word on our life. 
But just because we know that doesn't mean we're there. Mm. Uh, and that's where patient friend, a counselor, hey, let's let's not start with dreaming. Mm. What what part of dreaming intimidates you? What part of dreaming feels off limits as if that's something that another class of people that I'm not a part of gets to do? Um, you know, if you're working, uh, I'm not trying to use a stereotype here, but if you've got a female who's in a oppressive home or marriage that if I dream, I just feel like I'm being a princess. But no, that to have hopes, to have dreams, to have aspirations. That's human. That that's not saying you're royalty. Um, but um, the the patience in that phase. Go, hey, let's. Dreams are going to thaw. Hope is going to thaw. Uh, let's. You know, when again another picture metaphor. If you've ever fallen asleep and you've got one hand stuck up uh, over your head yes, and it doesn't it have blood sleeping. flow, <laughs> yes. uh, it doesn't go from dead uh, to fully functional and alive. Like the right. blood comes in, there's the tingles, it feels weak, it kind of it slowly comes back to life. If we're talking about the kind of hardship where in this metaphor, a decade was spent there. Uh, that that recovery process uh, doesn't mean God can't move faster than that, but if we're just saying the law of averages, uh, sure. it, it can be a longer process that, that merits our patience and, again, metaphorically speaking, rehabilitating that uh, at the pace that that injury uh, requires. What's well, interesting, one of my... Um counselor said to me, well, Colleen, it took you 35 years to get where you are in this. Mm -hmm. So let's expect a little bit longer than 35 minutes for there to be hope or progress. Let's be in this together. That alone is so um, freeing mm -hmm. when it comes to growing up internally and integrating the life that Jesus wants us to live. Well, Brad, as we, I mean, there's so many things that I could just talk with you about because you have a wealth of understanding of the human condition of pain and of time. Um, as you put grace and truth and time together, how would you speak to the church in general to be the hands and feet of Jesus, so to speak. How can we be better at that? Maybe not better, but just show up more whole in that. Yeah. So one of those, um, around our church, we use the term plumb line to mean kind of short, pithy statements that's an anchor for what we do. Um, one of the plumb lines in, in the ministry that I do is, I say all the time, the gospel speaks to both sin and suffering, but it speaks to them differently. Uh, the gospel offers forgiveness and freedom for sin. It offers comfort and meaning amid suffering. Uh, I think as a church at large, 
just capital C church, we tend to be a lot more skilled. Uh, we've got a lot more approaches, details, ministry models for things that are in that sphere of responsibility. Sure. That these hardships emerge from my beliefs, values, and choices. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just a recognition on this suffering side of the equation, we're less developed. We're less coordinated. That's an area that if we're going to do better as churches, we're going to have to get more skilled in the ways that we minister to suffering. That doesn't mean a neglect of anything on the sin side of the equation. I mean, you say this, everybody's worried that you're going to become liberal and social gospel and that kind of stuff. No, praise God for the forgiveness of sin. Um, Literally, not as just like an exasperation statement. Uh, But also praise God for the comfort of suffering. Um, And, uh, you know, that that Jesus is our Savior, the Spirit is a, a comforter, that this aspect, it's it's central to God's work in our life. And if we're going to be a full ambassador, this is an area that we should aspire to get better at. Um, and so I think that's one, if we just have the category and recognize like, um, we're really good with our right hand uh, in this area of responsibility, sin, that kind of thing. We're not as good with our left. We need to spend some more time here. Um, I think even acknowledging that can allow folks who are hurting to have more patience with us when we're at least self-aware, where we're a little less skilled and a little less coordinated than we are over there. But let's not try to uh, force a square peg into a round hole and assume because I'm better at this, this is what you need. Right. I just so appreciate your honesty, Brad, and your, um, your message of enduring care. Because that's truly what it's about. It's just caring with endurance and with kindness. I'm not dismissing, like you said, the responsibility part of it. I think we've got that down. Mm-hmm. But the care and the love that is shared through this interaction, and I hope and know with the audience here, I just so appreciate your presence and oh. the message that you have brought to this. Thank you. And yeah. thank you for the work that you that you did in this book. I just encourage churches to check it out. And your site is so robust with material and writing that is helpful to um, nurture our souls into growth. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you do, for the trust that you've cultivated uh, with your audience. And if this can be an extension of the trust that you've built with them, I would be delighted. Amen. Well, thank you, Brad, for being with me today. Yeah. So uh, it's been a good conversation. I think you brought a great, uh, I mean, the, the tone of tenderness, of caution, of making a hard subject feel safer. Um, just really appreciate how you, uh, how you managed and navigated the interview. So thank you. You're welcome. And we will put in the show notes how to find you, your Mm -hmm. sites, which I've identified, and we will pass that along as well. So thank you so much. Enjoyed today's podcast? We'd love to hear how you've been encouraged in our website comments and our podcast reviews. If you haven't connected with us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, we'd love to see you there. 
The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.